We will go from some Hebrew word studies to a Holocaust memorial to your calls. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH, number to call, 866-348-7884. If you have a Jewish-related, Hebrew-related, Israel-related question, sometimes we'll even touch more broadly on Islam as well, although I'm not nearly as expert on Islam as I am in these other subjects. I'm not expert on Islam, period. 866-34-TRUTH. Glad to answer your questions. If you differ with me, if you're a Jewish person and you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, if you differ with some of my other beliefs, as long as it's Jewish-related, phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH. Gathering of about 50 world leaders in Jerusalem this week to say never again regarding the Holocaust and the destruction of the Jewish people. Uh, Something to talk about that, uh, Something about that that I want to bring up, and what about end-time prophecy? Does end-time prophecy say that the whole world will turn against the Jewish people? What do we make of something like this? Are there prophecies that say that in the end of the age or in the millennial kingdom that the nations of the world will honor and serve the Jewish people? How do we sort these things out? Or do we even think about end-time prophecy and just look in a practical way about today? What about today, justice and righteousness today, Israel, the Palestinians, the world— how do we look at those things? So we'll, we'll talk about that also, 866-34-TRUTH. First, though, I, I want to open up the Hebrew Bible to you. We often do this on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. And as you know, if you're a regular listener to The Line of Fire, one day, for example, this week, Tuesday, we talked about the impeachment process. Yesterday, more broadly about culture wars. Today, a Jewish-related subject. Tomorrow, taking your calls on any subjects. We, we cover a lot of different ground. If there's some breaking news during a show and we feel it's important to comment on that or major world news, of course, we'll do that. But otherwise, one of the beauties about this broadcast, I'm not saying better than any other broadcast, but one of the unique things about it is that by God's grace, we get to cover a lot of different ground and a lot of different subjects and hopefully educate you, edify you, strengthen you, encourage you in a wide range of subjects. So uh, Hebrew word studies obviously something that I'm fascinated in, uh, fascinated with, having devoted decades of my life to studying the biblical languages and to doing word studies. My doctoral dissertation, as many of you know, was based on one Hebrew word. I've done Hebrew word studies for some major theological dictionaries and for special articles and things like that. So I want to do a few with you, take you uh, through a few and give you some guidelines in terms of practical ways to do things. So first, let's look at the word emunah, emunah. And if you look in the listing of the classic Brown Driver Brings lexicon, which is over 100 years old now, if you look at that, emunah, you'll see it's listed in the heading as a feminine noun, so N, F, and then uh, actually... Kai, I just noticed that we've got the wrong caption underneath it. 
All right, we've got the caption for the word for Torah. So those that are watching, just ignore what you just saw. Uh, it's it's actually a bit of a game to get a certain Hebrew font with accents and put it over into Photoshop. But if we look up Emunah in Brown Driver Briggs, uh, so a major lexicon, uh, it, it gives different basic meanings for it. And it lists as the most fundamental meanings firmness, steadfastness, and fidelity. Firmness, steadfastness, and fidelity. And yet, it's the word that is translated in the King James and in most of our English translations or many of our English translations in Habakkuk 2.4 as faith. The righteous will live by his faith. So how do you get from firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, faithfulness, how do you get from there to faith? So here's what's very interesting about the word emunah. It does not mean faith in an abstract kind of way. It means faith in in a sense of faithfulness, of fidelity, steadfastness, some of the words that are used here, so that there is a trust that faith is not just a I'm exercising faith, meaning I hold to a certain confession of faith. I hold certain things to be true, something that's kind of abstract and theological. Rather, it's a trusting in. It's a, it is a leaning on. And, and many of you may understand faith in that way already, but there's a concreteness to it in the Hebrew concept that's important to hold on to. So uh, if, if I was doing a word study, what I would do is this. So let's say I'm in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and uh, in, in the King James, uh, the just shall live by his faith. New King James, just shall live by his faith. Uh, CSB, the righteous one will live by his faith. ESV, the righteous shall live by his faith. NIV, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. NET, the person of integrity will live because of his faithfulness. NLT, the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Complete Jewish Bible, the righteous will attain life through trusting faithfulness. And the New Jewish Publication Society version, but the righteous man is rewarded with life for his fidelity, his faithfulness. All right? So, so if I'm looking at this, I, obviously I see all the different English translations but the first thing that I would do is, is I would click on that word, all right? And I would say, okay, uh, where does it occur in the Hebrew Bible? How many times does it occur? And one search using some of my Bible software, it comes up saying that it occurs uh, 49 times, 49 verses, 49 times. And the very first time is Exodus seventeen twelve. So what I'll now do is I'll look at each of the occurrences. Now, if it's thousands of occurrences or many, many hundreds, then I'll look more for subdivisions and things like this. But otherwise, I want to see, okay, how is this word used? Let me look in verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse after verse and see how it's used and get a feel for it. In other words, fill in the blank. What word related to these concepts fits in best? So the first occurrence I find is Exodus 17.12. 
as you know the story, as Joshua is out fighting the Amalekites and Moses is, is holding up the, the rod of victory, and when he holds it up, uh, the, the children of Israel are triumphing, but his arms get tired, he lets it down, and, and they start to lose. So Aaron and Horus stand on either side of him. He sits down on a rock, and they hold his hands up so he can hold the staff up. And his, his hands were, what does it say? Yadav emunah. His hands were steady. They weren't filled with faith. They were steady. And that's how many will translate it. His hands were steady. Then Deuteronomy 32.4, the next time it occurs, and speaking about the Lord, I'll read from the ESV, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of emunah, a God of faithfulness, a God of faithfulness. So it's not that he has a lot of faith and he can believe for anything because he's God. No, he is utterly and completely faithful, dependable. So you can see a connection between the, the steady and faithfulness, dependable. You use a different word in each place, right, to translate it into English. Just like if you're translating from English into Hebrew or Greek, you might have to use a different word in each case to convey the meaning of the English in a different context. Um, so First Samuel 26, 23. Uh, there it says, there's a prayer, <laughs> may the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty, CSV, ESV, faithfulness. So there you see again that nuance there is not so much, not so much one of faith believing, although the verbal form means to believe. If you say it in Hebrew, how do you say to believe? You use the verbal form from the same root, but it doesn't just mean some abstract believing. It is that leaning on, that depending, that that I am putting my faith in God's faithfulness, which leads to my faithfulness to God. The idea of having emunah, real faith, and not being faithful to God would be kind of unthinkable, really an oxymoron in the Hebrew, that you can have emunah, faith, without being faithful. Uh, Psalm 33, 4, ESV, for the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in emunah, done in faithfulness. So that's, you know, in the Psalms, verse after verse after verse, Psalm 100, verse 5, and there, there are many others. Uh, his emunah endures forever, meaning what? His faithfulness, his faithfulness endures forever. Yeah, so verse after verse declaring this. Uh, Proverbs, uh, here, uh, a, a, there's a contrast between a false witness and a truthful witness, a reliable witness. And what's the word used there? It is emunah, that is the faithful witness who speaks righteously. N-E-T, the faithful witness tells what is right. So when I, when I get to Habakkuk now, I have a little different perspective. And there's a debate in translation. When it says the righteous will live by his emunah, does it mean he will live by God's faithfulness or by his own faithfulness? And his faithfulness is the outworking of his faith. 
And Paul quotes this as an essential verse. He quotes it in Romans and Galatians to say, the just, the righteous, will live by his faith. But faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. Because of God's faithfulness, we put our faith in him and thereby are faithful to him. You you see, just looking at the usage, you realize it's not just faith in the abstract sense of believing a certain thing to be true. It is rather a life lived because of that truth, a true trust that is put in God because of which we live a certain way. Faith and faithfulness go hand in hand. Is that helpful? Does that open something up for you? I hope so. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. We'll do some more of this, share some fascinating traditions with you, and take your calls. 866-34-TRUTH. Be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. One hour from now, one hour from now, maybe a couple minutes less we'll start, we'll do our weekly YouTube chat. So if you are unable to get through by phone or if it's just easier to join in with your questions or you just enjoy the flow of the chat, the Q&A, that'll be in our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown. You can be watching right now live there or live on our Facebook page, A-S-K-D-R Brown, or of course listening on radio or podcast or any other means that you have. But we'll start our YouTube chat about 4.15, roughly 4.15 Eastern Standard Time, Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube. All right, to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. We start with Gavin in Cleveland. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Awesome. About a year ago, I talked to you about the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 7, and uh, since then I've been really, really digging in and studying, and it's caused me to start slowly buying the, uh, the Aramaic Bible on Lagos in English. And um, I'm wondering, as far as Messianic prophecy goes, since these resources are so expensive, would you, for the Torah at least, because I've already, I've already been buying Isaiah and the prophets and stuff, would you recommend Onkelos or uh, Pseudo-Jonathan? Well, Onkelos is, is the primary one that's used. So if you're reading the translations, uh, the Aramaic Bible, that official work, which is, which is a, an excellent academic work, that'll give you all the variants in the uh, in the footnotes and things like that, where you have different Targumic versions and variations, which is going to be mainly in, in the Torah. Otherwise, you're dealing primarily with Targum Jonathan. But uh, within the Torah, you can have Unculus or Pseudo-Jonathan, uh, or you can even have Neophyte. So you have these different ones that have uh, some discovered more recently. But in any case, uh, Targum Unculus is the standard one that would be uh, any religious Jew would be familiar with if a religious Jew was studying the text, uh, you have what's called mikra ot which is big scriptures. So the so-called rabbinic Bible 
in multiple volumes, you'll have the biblical text in the biggest letters, and then next to that, Targum Unkelos for the, for the Torah, and the next biggest letters, and then all the commentaries, and then some will have the, the other Targumim as well. But one other thing you may want to look into in terms of overall cost, those volumes are great, so get them, use them for further academic study. But if you have, for example, Accordance Bible software, which I've been using a, a lot, uh, Logos and, and Accordance, the main ones that I, that I use uh, in, in, for English works and things like that, and excuse me, for works in English along with Hebrew and Greek, and then I have other stuff just purely for rabbinic. But if, if you will go there and check on Targums, you can actually get uh, English translation of all the Targums, and it's, it's not that expensive for the entire Bible. So you can just check on those options. But otherwise, your yeah, Targum Unkalos is, is what you're following. That's the primary one that is used, and that, that would have the most weight if you're dealing with a traditional Jew or trying to get an idea of what Jews have believed through the centuries, what passages they took to be Messianic and not. Unkalos is your better source. Okay. Yeah, I was really blown away about, with the um, Isaiah one. I mean, there's, you know, Messiah everywhere. Um, so I'm surprised that they really downplay that, because it seems like it's in places where Christians don't even... Oh, yeah, look, there's there's a, a famous appendix in Alfred Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, where he listed, to his knowledge, all the verses in the Old Testament that were applied messianically in rabbinic writings. And probably the majority of them were applied in homiletical ways, but verses you'd never dream of in a million years of having any messianic import are quoted in that regard, not necessarily in the plain sense of them, but in a homiletical way. On the other hand, Isaiah 7.14 is not found in any ancient Jewish tradition as a messianic prophecy. You won't find that in the Targum. You won't find that in the Talmud. And then, of course, later rabbinic commentaries uh, would certainly not go in that direction because of of, uh, New Testament Christian views and things like that. But, yeah, there are many, many verses we would never think of being messianic that in rabbinic literature are interpreted with reference to the Messiah. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fascinating study for sure. Keep up the good work, man. Let us know how we can help. All right. Thanks very much. You bet. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Isaac in South Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate you taking my call. Sure thing. Yeah, um, I, I'm actually just... Uh, I just started a class in, in Hebrew. I'm taking my Master of Divinity in Christian Apologetics, and one of it is you have to do a, a introduction to Hebrew class. And I'll mm-hmm. be honest, I'm a little overwhelmed. I've, I've only dabbled in French in high school, and that was still with, you know, Latin lettering, English lettering, and all that. And so now that I have a completely different language on top of different lettering, I'm having a hard time just grasping. I'm doing all the assignments. I'm doing all that stuff, but I'm just, I just don't really know where to start mm-hmm. or what maybe certain things I could do that kind of help me get just kind of a basic understanding of Hebrew that I can build on. I was just yeah. wondering if you had any tips for new people who've never, ever had any background in oh, Hebrew yeah. at all. You bet. Uh, where are you studying, by the way, Isaac? What school? Uh, Liberty. It's, um, okay. I'm going through the um, military funding and stuff, and so that's one of the few ones I can, I can Excellent. funding that. Okay, excellent. Good, good. All right, so uh, number one, your whole goal here is to pass in, in the class, okay, and to know yeah. enough Hebrew that you can use a dictionary later on. 
it's very unlikely that you'll ever learn the language well. When I when I do classes at seminary for for pastors and things like that, maybe it's a second year Hebrew class, uh, and, and they're gonna mm-hmm. they work really hard. They've been pushing hard, you know, and spends hours and hours in preparation. I told them unless you do, stay with this like every day for many years ahead, you're gonna forget this all within a few years. So basically, don't your your whole goal is to just basically get familiar with the alphabet and the structure and how 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 Hebrew language works just in the most basic level. So you can make more sense out of the dictionaries when you go to do studies or better evaluate what the commentaries are saying when you do studies. So the key thing you have to do is through massive repetition, get used to the letters and the basic words, letters, vowels. And the best way to do that is with flashcards. You can, you can draw them for yourself or there are flashcards I'm sure available online different things like that. And what you want to do is just, oh, and, and I did this with plenty of languages, use flashcards uh, for many years. And if I was picking one up again, I'd, I'd go back to doing it or I'd get some software that has like a flashcard function. And you just want to go over okay. it and over it and over it and over it until it becomes kind of second nature to you. And, and it can. It's, it's a little different. It's a whole different alphabet. Uh, you're obviously not uh, six years old learning a language, you know, by being with a family. You know, it's, we're, we're older. It's, it's challenging. Yeah. So just that massive repetition over and over and over until it feels more familiar. And then if you have word cards, if you're learning vocabulary, you want to be saying those over and over, however, whatever pronunciation guides they're giving you because they are different approaches to, to how to pronounce Hebrew. You know, do we use a modern pronunciation, an ancient pronunciation? And and you just you repeat it over and over, over and over, over and over, over and over, and just from just I'm not getting it. I'm not. It'll click. You'll get it. You'll get it. And so just keep doing it, looking at it, writing the letters out, massive repetition over and over and over, and then from there, just try every day to work with it, rather than putting in like six hours one day. Better to put in fifteen twenty minutes every day and just keep working at it, looking at it reading it, getting used to it, the same thing over and over until it feels familiar, then you move on to something else. And, and then just concentrate on the basics. Don't be intimidated by how much there is to learn because unless God really calls you to it, it's not going to be something you'll be able to devote the energy and time to. So get the basics down, do what you have to do to pass the test, and then just don't, don't neglect it afterwards. You know, Look at it here and yeah. there so you can remember what you've learned and then use that for further study. All right? Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. I greatly appreciate it. You bet. Sure thing. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to David in Canada. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You're welcome. Um, Did you get my question? Go ahead. You can ask it on the air. The question is, um, what is the proper thing... uh, the, this only started in, the, I'm not saying it's wrong, I, I like the word Yeshua, but what is the proper um, uh, name uh, uh, to talk about the, the Lord? Is it Yeshua or, or Jesus? Because uh, a guy came to a church I was at about 20 years ago and said, a Jewish guy, uh, an evangelist, and said, the Lord's name is really Yeshua, it's not Jesus. And... Uh, um, I mean, you, you read, you look at the Bible, and yeah. So, so hang on, uh, just, just re- yeah, yeah, just, just hang on. Uh, what's your name again? My name's David. Uh, no, it's actually David. Of course, it's David. David. Yeah, right, right. But in English, it's David. What's my name? 
yeah. Michael. In right. Hebrew, it's Michael. So when you're speaking English, it's Jesus. If you want to refer to him as Hebrew name, Yeshua. Same person. Okay. Yeah. So Yeshua comes into English as Jesus. And just mm-hmm. like David comes into English, uh, David comes into English as David, and Michael comes into English as Michael. So the reason that sometimes the reason that sometimes we refer to Jesus as Yeshua in English is because people have so forgotten the Jewish roots of the faith, or I'm talking to a Jewish person and I want that Jewish person to know, hey, he's he's one of us. That's Yeshua. You might think of him as this Jesus guy, some foreigner. No, that's that's Yeshua, our Messiah. So it's perfectly fine if you enjoy speaking to him. Uh, you know, calling out to Yeshua and using that name, great. But if I was sharing the gospel just with the general public and not specifically with the Jewish person, of course I say Jesus because I want them to know who I'm talking about. And then the Jewish person, yeah, that Jesus is actually Yeshua. So in English, Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. 45 minutes from now, slightly under that, 4.15 Eastern Standard Time, so compute that wherever you are in the world. 4.15 4.15 Eastern Standard, we'll start our weekly YouTube chat. So that is devoted exclusively to answering questions that you post on YouTube. It's a great time for folks to interact with one another in the live chat as well. So make a note of that. That'll be on our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown. If you've got a Jewish-related call, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, this week, there was a major gathering, a unique gathering in Jerusalem, looking at a headline here from the Washington Post, which says that uh, leaders from almost 50 countries convene in Jerusalem to remember the Holocaust and to counter anti-Semitism. This is a major event. It's on the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz, the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp. And uh, Vice President Pence, House Speaker Pelosi were there in honor of the event, and different leaders got up and spoke and basically said, never again. We will never allow something like this to happen again. Now, I, I hope that that is true in terms of these leaders. I hope that in years to come, decades to come, God knows how many years ahead of us, next century, God knows, that these nations will stand with Israel that they will not allow the Jewish people to be destroyed the way they were. Two out of every three Jews in Europe killed. Shockingly, maybe not shockingly, a good percentage of Americans, when they were polled, they knew about the Holocaust, but didn't know how many Jews died. Some thought it was more than six million. Many thought it was less than six million. I think, how's that? How's that? We're not talking about an event a thousand years ago. We're talking about something where you still have survivors alive today. So most Americans know what the Holocaust was, Times of Israel, other headlines report, but they don't know that 6 million Jews were killed. 
So I, I just wonder, will these leaders stay true? Will Israel one day be scapegoated for all the world's problems? Will Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14 come to pass as it seems to say that all the nations will come against Jerusalem? Or does that all mean a, a coalition of nations? Or could it possibly mean all the surrounding nations as opposed to all the nations on the earth? I mean, these things are debated. But, but already you see that there are reasons for concern. So you welcome the solidarity, you appreciate the solidarity, you applaud the leaders for saying what they're saying, coming to Jerusalem to do this. On the, on the other hand, there's an article in Jewish press that, that says this, um, Macron, so <clears throat> France's Prime Minister Macron, slammed for his visit with Mahmoud Abbas. So while he's there for this specific visit and to commemorate the memory of the liberation from Auschwitz, at the same time he meets with Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas. You say, well, why is that a mockery of the Holocaust? This is according to an Israeli legislator. Why is it a mockery of the Holocaust? Because Abbas wrote his doctoral dissertation basically on Holocaust denial and questioned things within the Holocaust. Let me read some excerpts of this article on the Jewish press by Aryeh Savir, uh, French president, um, oh, president, excuse me, I said prime minister, Emmanuel Macron's meeting with Palestinian Authority head Mahmoud Abbas during his visit to Israel to commemorate the Holocaust is a mockery of the Holocaust, according to Israeli politician Sarah Black. Uh, so, oh, let's just go down here. Uh, so Sarah Beck uh, wrote in a letter she sent Macron that as a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors and a grandfather and of a grandfather who served as a rabbi and a colonel in the French army, I feel that your visit to the Mukata, the headquarters in Ramallah, where Arafat, who has the blood of masses of Jews on his hand, is buried, and with Abbas, the Holocaust denier, as part of the Holocaust memorial event is like bringing the killer executioner to the mourner's home. Abbas wrote his PhD dissertation on the connection between the Nazis and the leaders of the Zionist movement 1933 to 1945. In the research, which was also published as a book, he mocked the accepted number for Jewish deaths in the Holocaust and dismissed it as a myth and fantastic lie and claimed Zionist agitation had been the cause of the Holocaust. And even if Abbas has revised some of his views since, as he revises larger views towards Israel and the Jewish people, during a meeting of the Palestinian National Council in 2018, Abbas stated that Jews in Europe were massacred for centuries because of, quote, their social role related to usury in banks, a statement condemned globally as explicit anti-Semitism. Beck wrote her letter on behalf of third-generation Holocaust survivors and on behalf of victims of terrorism. She added that she appreciated the visit and the president's activities against anti-Semitism, but noticed that, quote, it cannot be that the visit involves such a severe moral distortion in which you pay homage to those who have raised the banner of killing Jews. Your visit there desecrates the event. Yeah, I agree. If, if you want to visit Abbas, it's not that hard to go from France to Ramallah. It's not that hard. Or to have Abbas meet you somewhere in another location. It's not that hard to do. So to, to do it at the same time that you're going to Israel, to remember the liberation from Auschwitz and to say never again. It's commendable that he was there, but highly questionable that he did what he did. So all that to say, I wonder where the deeper solidarity is. I wonder if push came to shove, would he stand with the people of Israel or would he stand with the Palestinian Authority? You say, well, he's just going to stand with justice wherever it is. Well, I would hope that's the case, but I don't know that that's the case. 
So it's, it's this kind of thing that makes me wonder about how deep the support really is. 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go back to the phones in Greensboro, North Carolina. Carl, welcome to the line of fire. Yes, sir. How are you, Dr. Brown? Doing very well. Thank you. Yes, sir. I wanted to know, have you read a book called The Forgotten Jesus by Robin Galaxy, who is a, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, who is a Jewish Christian? Uh, I have looked at it, but I have not read all of it. In fact, let me just check one thing here. Uh, yeah, I've looked at it, uh, but only only glanced at some of its content. Uh, well, yeah, so the full yeah the full title about. yeah the forgotten Jesus: How Western Christians Should Follow an Eastern Rabbi. Uh, when the book came yeah, out, when was it? Uh, when was it? Uh, yeah, two thousand yeah two thousand seventeen. When it came out, it got my attention. And it's got, uh, for example, Lois Tverberg, who was on my show, who's got some great books about the words of Jesus. Uh, she has a positive review of it. I meant to get it, and, and according to my records here, I don't own it. But, yeah, go ahead with some specifics, please. Okay. Uh, like, for instance, you know how Jesus was considered a carpenter? And there's mm-hmm. the, the Greek word, I think, for tec- tecton, something like that. Yeah, so the Am question is, is, right? is it is it builder... The overwhelming yes. consensus is Carpenter. I that's so something said, I've been. Go ahead. He says he says he thinks probably he was a stonemason because you know because there's not much wood around there, and plus, cause the, the stones that the builders rejected have become a cornerstone, and and there's mostly stone builds around there, and just everything he talks about, you know, tends to be with stone and stuff like that, you know. This is just an interesting point. It doesn't do anything really to change the meaning of the gospel. Just obviously, just different. But also, he all talked about you know when uh, when the Lord told Peter, "You will deny me three times for the the crow cries tw- twice," something like that. He says that probably was the town crier blowing a trumpet. Certain yeah. times of the day, because because. Uh, uh, a rooster or whatever would be considered unclean, probably wouldn't even be around there. So I just wonder what you thought about stuff like that. Yeah, I, I had a rabbi many, many years ago challenge the, the rooster theory, but I, I see no reason uh, to reject that, that it was actually a rooster as opposed to an idiom for a town crier. And with all yeah. respect to, to the good that may be in the book, and obviously you're doing the right thing, you're reading it with interest, and maybe it could be, and, oh, that's fascinating, let's look into it more. What you have to ask yourself is, when you have top scholars, many of them know the Jewish background really, really well, right? I mean, they've studied it for yes, many years. Some of them can read Hebrew and the Aramaic well. And they say all still translate with the word carpenter. And then the major yes, dictionaries, which which uh-huh. scholars devote you know their whole lives to putting these things together and look at all the... And if, if you can come up with a new meaning, like all the better. All the better if you could discover something someone else didn't. The fact that they all end up saying uh, carpenter, you know, uh, yeah, it could be, yeah a, could be a builder. There's a reason for it. In other words, there have to be answers. So the best thing to do is when you're looking at, at what he's writing, so calling me, that's, that's one means, right? But then the other thing yeah. is, okay, so get a you know, look at a, a good scholarly commentary that talks about the rooster or, or a biblical dictionary that talks about the rooster or talks about carpenter and then read their whole discussion 
and see, are they evaluating his arguments? Is he bringing in something that they're missing? The danger uh, is that many times we throw out like a mountain of scholarship with serious people studying the scriptures that don't have an axe to grind in either way, right? Because of an interesting theory over here. So by all means, look at the interesting theory. Uh, And and I I, I will at some point read this book. Uh, But yeah, you've got to, you always have to ask if that's the case, even like the complete Jewish Bible, for example, or the, the David Stern New Testament, why did he render it with carpenter? You know, why didn't, why didn't he use the word builder? Because he's certainly intimately familiar with the Jewish backgrounds and sources and things like that. So that's what would that's raise right. the, the further questions. Yeah. That's, Was there right. a, that's a great point. Yep. Let, let me throw one thing else real quick. Yeah, yeah. And it's not Jewish, but I was at the abortion clinic last Tuesday. A gentleman came there that's from Denmark. Axel. Named, uh, Axel Berg. Yes, sir. He, he was uh, in our office. Yeah, in our office met with uh, David Benham and Justin Reeder with Cities for Life and Love Life, Charlotte and beyond. Yeah, he lives in Faroe Islands, hosted me there a few years ago uh, with homosexuality debate going on, studying in medical school in Denmark and has a real real pro-life burden. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I gave him a ride to Hertz rental car to ride to your place. I was Are you serious? I was so so blessed to see a young man like that from Denmark here, just trying to figure out things, you know? Yeah, and, and like he said, you know, the, the March to Life last year in Denmark, you know, right in the you know, biggest city, drew about 30 people. There were more protesters, pro-abortion protesters, than pro-life marchers. So there needs to be a tremendous pro-life move in Europe and specifically in Scandinavia. All right, thank you for the questions and for helping out. Our brother there, 866-34-TRUTH. Right back with another Hebrew word study and your calls. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, less than 30 minutes from now, our YouTube chat, so that's over at Ask Dr. Brown. I'm looking at bunches of questions that have been posted on our Facebook feed during the show, and we're unable to interact with them for the most part during the show, and then questions being posted on YouTube. So here's your opportunity to grab your question and go ahead and post it. I'll answer probably close to an hour, about an hour beginning at 4.15 Eastern Standard, Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube. Quick reminder, we are running out of seats on our Israel tour. It's only two buses. It's an amazing, intimate, wonderful time together. Trip of a lifetime, amazing tour by day, special meetings and events at night. So if you haven't signed up, gotten your deposit first payments in, do it today. Go to AskDrBrown.org. You'll see it right on the homepage, Holy Fire in the Holy Land. Be sure to join us. All right, I want to do a quick word study with you, but before that, I'm looking at 
Craig Keener's Bible background commentary for the New Testament. Craig Keener knows Jewish background sources as well as any New Testament scholar that I know today. And to Mark 6.3, he notes Jesus is called a carpenter. Early in Jesus' childhood, Sepphoris, then capital of Galilee, had been destroyed by the Romans, and rebuilding had begun immediately. Thus, carpenters were no doubt in demand in Nazareth, a village four miles from the ruins of Sepphoris, and Joseph, Jesus' father, probably taught his son his own trade, as was common for fathers to do in those days. After Sepphoris had been rebuilt, they probably did most carpentry work from their home, as most Galilean carpenters did. The observation that Jesus is a carpenter is meant to identify him, not to suggest the unlikelihood of a carpenter being a teacher, for we also know of other carpenters who became famous teachers, for example, Shammai, who would have been an older contemporary of Jesus. So the point is that there are plenty of carpenters around then, and there's a reason that translators assume he was a carpenter versus a stone work, although either way, it's not essential to our faith. All right. Uh, the word Torah, the word Torah, what exactly does it mean? So Torah, if you look again in the Brown Driver Briggs Dictionary, there are many since then, but this is a standard lexicon. It, it gives three meanings, direction, instruction, law. It does not put law first, which is correct. It is direction, instruction, law. So when we think of Torah, many times we immediately think of law. And when we do so, we miss some of the meaning of the word. You can think of it as authoritative instruction, divine teaching. So it is law in terms of if this is the Torah concerning certain sacrifices, or this is the Torah concerning this ritual. or the, So this is the law for this or for that. And when you have the Torah and the prophets and the writings or the Torah and the Psalms, you can think of it as law. But, hey, Torah is also the five books of Moses. And Torah in the five books of Moses is more than law. The book of Genesis is not law. Much of the book of Exodus is not law. Many of the recountings of the journeys and numbers and Deuteronomy are not law. So there are many laws there, and the Sinai Covenant comes with laws, but Torah means more than law. Now, when translated into Greek, it was translated by Jewish translators of the Septuagint as nomos, which has more of the meaning of law inherent in it. And then, as that becomes the primary word used in the New Testament, nomos, it is very easy to make that the primary meaning law, as opposed to understanding that is part of of the larger meaning. So again, if I was doing a word study, let's say I'm reading in, oh, say the, the book of Isaiah, right? So I'm in the book of Isaiah and I go to the second chapter and I see, okay, in verse three, it says that Torah will go out from Zion. Now what's interesting is King James, New King James, out of Zion shall go forth the law. CSB, though, recognizing there's more to it than just law, for instruction will go out of Zion. In other words, in the millennial kingdom, as the nations come streaming to Jerusalem to learn from the God of, of Israel, it is not just law, but divine instruction. Yeah, it's binding. What God says is binding. But, but when we're told, you know, remember in Proverbs, remember the Torah of your mother, right? 
Remember the Torah of your mother. It's not the law. It's the instruction. It's the the teaching. Uh, ESV says law. NIV says law. NET says for Zion will be the center for moral instruction. You get a little different nuance there. Um, NLT, the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. And the complete Jewish Bible for Adoption will go forth Torah. And then the New Jewish Publication Society for instruction shall come forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, so the point is, it is not just specifically the law. It is more than that. So Jewish tradition says that Torah comes from the root yara, which is to cast or to throw. And it finds a reference in Exodus 15 where Moses cast that root yara. He casts a tree into the bitter waters at Mara, and the bitter waters become sweet and drinkable. All right? Uh, not sweet, but they become drinkable more particularly is, is the emphasis there. In any case, the idea is that the, the Torah makes the bitter waters sweet. Well, it's interesting that Christian interpreters read that in the past, and they saw Torah, uh, they saw, excuse me, rather, not Torah, but they saw a stick, piece of wood, piece of a tree thrown into the waters, and they said, that's the cross, that speaks of the cross, and makes the bitter waters sweet. So I always use that illustration in Exodus 15 to say, look at how Jewish interpreters look at the passage, look at how Christian interpreters look at the passage. They each kind of read their own theology in it, whereas it has nothing to do with the cross or with Torah, just has to do with a piece of wood being thrown into the waters there. Anyway, just want to share that with you. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Ohio. Thanks for holding Levite. Welcome to the line of fire. Uh, thank you. How are you doing today, sir? Very well, thanks. Okay, the question I have is, because I uh, had some friends that recently uh, turned their backs on the Messiah, Yeshua. Mm. And like one of the many claims of the contradictions of the Brit Hadashah, they're saying, which I actually have seen it, uh, between Matthew and Luke with Yeshua's uh, fleshly or uh, birth date. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile that? Yeah. So where where is the alleged contradiction? Because that's not one that's normally raised. People will raise it about genealogy, or they'll try to raise well, about messianic prophecy. I, I apologize. No, the genealogy is easy enough to explain, and I apologize okay. for not having it right on hand. It's just I remember them putting uh, a thing up where he was supposedly born at a certain time in Matthew. And then the one with Luke, and there's a difference there. Matthew, Matthew does not. Yeah, that that is not. Let, let me just ask one question really quickly. And if if you can find the specific uh, details, by all means, just send it to our to our website, sdrbrown.org. There's a contact uh, button you okay. can click on, and we have team Old Testament scholar, New Testament scholar working with us that will gladly answer specifics and and bring me in if if I'm needed on any of that. But uh, Luke, the issue with Luke is he talks about a census that took place at a certain time, and we don't have a record of that specific census outside of Luke. Okay. The answer to that would be that because Luke is seen to be trustworthy in account after account after account and details he gives about places and just casual background or other people that he puts in certain places that are at the right place at the right time, that he's proven himself to be reliable He's writing to people that lived at that time 
and, and in those decades. So it's not like he could just make something up. You know, I, I couldn't very well tell people today about President Reagan who, who fought in the Civil War. You know, I mean, some people, <laughs> they're that far <laughs> yeah, off. They don't right. even know oh, Reagan. Yeah, right. He's an old guy, you know, or, you know, that I could I could talk about when Michael Jackson was assassinated before World War One. I. I mean, people people have been around. Well, so for Luke to create something out of nothing when he's so reliable elsewhere, you just say, oh, well, Luke must give us details that we didn't have because we do short. have records of other yeah. other similar uh, other similar records. But the point is, when you get to Matthew he doesn't give you a, a specific time frame. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Okay. He doesn't. He doesn't tell you anything that would contradict this, except that that Herod is still the king at that point. So you know that Jesus yeah. would have been born a few years before the the wrong date that we have for like the zero day. You know, the zero year from one BC to then so one AD. In short, the substance is all still there, despite all the different languages and over the centuries of the manuscripts. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. No, no, not just that. There's no, there's no dispute about the words, the manuscripts. That's what I'm saying. I don't. Matthew does not give you a specific enough date, except to tell you that Jesus is born uh, while Herod is still alive. So that means he had to be born yeah. at least like three or four B.C because of when Herod actually died. So whoever came up with the chronology, got that's not from the Bible. That's just their own count. They got that wrong a little bit. So Jesus is actually born a few years B.C. before Christ, because someone many, many centuries later got that chronology wrong. But in terms of the date of the birth, there's, there's no discrepancy between Matthew and Luke. So please look into that, and by all means, send in your question, and you'll get a detailed, specific answer from one of our team members and friends. If I didn't get to your calls, and of course the many comments on Facebook and YouTube, just join us 15 minutes from now, all right? 15 minutes from now over at Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube. We'll take your questions there. God bless. Talk to you tomorrow. You've got questions. We've got it. Yeah, try to get back to us tomorrow.